0: Uh, well, in case uh, we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is John Carroll. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Covenant, and today I have a lot of information to get through and not a lot of time to do it, and so I'm going to jump right in, okay? All right. Now, I, I believe most of you in this room are Christians, and maybe since the day that you were born. But if you're not a particularly religious person, or you used to be, and you walked away from the faith, I believe that you had probably a good reason to do so. But today, I want to give you a reason to reconsider faith. And more specifically, I want to give you a reason to reconsider Jesus. Now, what we've said throughout this series is that Jesus came into the world to introduce something brand new. He didn't come to introduce an extension of something. This isn't some religion 2.0. He didn't show up to complete a book. He came to replace something and to bring something absolutely brand new to the world, but also for the world. And the part that is indisputable is that against all odds, a band of Jewish blasphemers who were following a dead carpenter went into the streets of Jerusalem with no territory, no military, and in the beginning had no sacred text. And they had the audacity to announce to the world that the final sacrifice for sin had already been made, and not just for Jewish people, but for the whole world, for every generation, and that the sacrifice for sin had been made right outside the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, this was crazy. They declared that animal sacrifice for every nation in every generation was no longer necessary. Now, This flew right in the face of all Roman religion and Greek religion and Egyptian religion and even Jewish religion. And there was a sense in which the whole world could have looked at this ragtag group of Jesus' followers and said, hey, who died and left you in charge? A question that they actually had an answer to. Now, this is incredible. About 300 years later, with no territory, no authority, and no military in the year 380 AD emperor theodosius I through an edict of Thessalonica declared christianity the sole authorized religion of the very empire that crucified jesus and tried to crush his movement just 300 years or so later the very person that the roman empire crucified and the movement they tried to crush became the religion of the empire now that's incredible But it was particularly incredible to John the Baptist a bunch of years earlier when he was standing in hip-deep water, and he was baptizing somebody, and he looks up, and there was Jesus. And he announces to the world for the very first time, please welcome the Lamb of God who has come to take take away the sin of the world. And sure enough, before too long, pagan temples were being torn down because of Christianity. Other pagan temples were being repurposed to become houses of worship for Christians. And ultimately, pagan worship in the Roman Empire was outlawed. All because of a group of people who declared that the final sacrifice for sin had been made outside the walls of Jerusalem, and nothing could shut them up. They were shoved in between the power of the temple and the empire, and in the end, they not only won an empire, In the end, their message reached all the way around the world. It's incredible. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Last time that we met, previously on 90, here's where we were. Jesus had been baptized. Jesus had been tempted. Jesus had gathered some followers. He met Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the text tells us that news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone was praising him. But everyone was praising him as a teacher, as a new rabbi, with a new spin on things. Everybody was praising him as a prophet. They viewed Jesus as an extension of something old instead of the beginning of something new. In fact, the text says of Jesus, A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help who? God has come to help his people. But Jesus had come to do a lot more than that. Jesus had come for a broader audience than that. And so very early on in his teaching, Jesus begins to drop hints that something new is coming, that he was about to replace just about everything that was in place. And there were hints. There were parables. There were teachings. There were things that created tension with his audience. But he was so good, and he was so powerful, and he would heal people along the way, and so he kept the crowd, even though everything that he was teaching was so different and so new. And his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, really represents a sharp curve in the road in terms of his teaching. Now, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, but that wasn't necessarily the title that Jesus gave it. And the reason he didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount Is because New Testament scholars believe that the content of that sermon is content that Jesus delivered over and over and over. In fact, if you took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put it together chronologically, all of that could have happened in about six or eight months except for the Passovers. So we know in the festivals, we know that there was a whole lot more that Jesus taught, and Jesus did. In fact, John, in his version of the gospel, said, look, We just scratched the surface. He says this at the end of his gospel. He said, if we had written down everything that he had done, if we had written down everything that he had taught, the world would not be able to contain the books. Now, clearly, this is hyperbole. But it was his way of saying, hey, we just gave you the highlights. So scholars believe that the content of this particular message, the Sermon on the Mount, was something that Jesus repeated over and over and over. And here's the fascinating thing, and here's the thing we miss. This content represented his upside-down worldview. This particular content was so contrary to everything that Jewish men and women had been taught that it was very difficult for them to get their mind around it. Now, when we read it in the 21st century as English Bible readers, we miss the tension in these words. So I want to try to extrapolate some of that so that you can understand what they must have thought and what they must have felt. And it begins like this, and many of you have memorized these verses, perhaps as children. Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, which was absolutely crazy because they've been brought up with the worldview that says God blesses the rich. And if you're rich, you're blessed by God. Besides, all the patriarchs were rich. Abraham was rich, Isaac was rich, Jacob was rich, David was rich, Solomon was rich. How can you say that God has special favor for the poor? The poor were out of favor with God. That's what we've been taught all our lives. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And this was good news to the poor, because they had thought that they'd been left out of the kingdom of God. And everything that follows in this message, every single time he gave it was completely upside down and backwards to what they had been taught since childhood. Jesus said, the meek would inherit. The merciful were blessed. The peacemakers were in God's favor. And then he said this, and this is one of my favorite lines. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And there was a murmur in the crowd because blessed in the pure of heart is such an internal thing. They have been taught all their lives that blessed are the ceremonially clean, those that have done the right washings, those that have kept themselves from contaminated things, those that stayed away from Gentiles and outside of Gentile homes, those that never touched dead things. Those were the people who were pleasing the God. And Jesus says, no. Things are changing. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart will have the ability to see and participate in the activity and the kingdom of God. And then he blew their minds. Jesus said, you, you Jewish people who have chosen to follow me, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. To which they thought, wait a minute, we're not the salt of the earth. We're not the light of the world. We've been taught to stay away from the world. We don't dress like the world? We don't eat like the world? We don't marry their daughters, our sons? You know, their daughters don't marry our sons? We've been taught since childhood that we're to stay away from the all things gentile, everything in the world. And now you're telling us that somehow we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world? In the same way, Jesus said, he just kept right going. In the same way, let your light, your life shine before others. And they knew what this meant. This meant non-Jewish people. No, wait. Let our light shine beyond Jewish people? We don't even like others. We don't want others around. In fact, the reason we're hoping for a Messiah is so the Messiah will come and get rid of all the others so that we can have our world back. That they may see, he just keeps going, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And they thought, we don't care if outsiders glorify our God. We, don't want out, we want outsiders to fear our God, like the days of Joshua when we had power, and the days of David when people feared our king, and the days of Solomon when we were a wealthy nation. And they thought to themselves, this is not very messianic. This does not sound like Moses or the prophets. This is new. And Jesus knew that they knew that it was new because he knew the hearts of men. And so he says, wait, 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 before we leave, do not think, do not assume that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, I got to stop here and explain something to you. Okay, during the first century and preceding centuries, the Jewish people did not call their Bible the Old Testament. In fact, Christians are the ones who started calling it that Starting around 130 AD, long after all this, Jewish people in the first century referred to their sacred scripture as the Law and the Prophets, which includes all of the history and the poetry and everything that we would consider the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament or the Old Covenant because it wasn't old, it was the current covenant. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Everybody in this region during this time referred to what we call the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, look, I've not come to abolish your Bible. I've not come to destroy it. I've not come to change it. I haven't even come to edit it. Now, why would he say something like this? Because Jesus knew that they'd misunderstand him. He goes on. He says, I've not come to abolish them but you aren't imagining things. The tension you feel in my words, the contrast between what you grew up hearing and what I'm saying now, that contrast is real. Change is coming. I'm going to challenge you to abandon what you've been taught. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, if the Old Covenant, if the Old Testament... If the law and the prophets were an assignment, Jesus says, I'm here to complete it. If the Old Covenant, if the Old Testament, if the law and the prophets were a math problem, Jesus says, I'm here to solve it. If the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, if the law and the prophets were a jet plane, Jesus says, I'm here to land it. And eventually, I'm going to invite everyone, including Jewish people, to disembark that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, had an expiration date. Something was about to change. In fact, the Old Testament approach to life was about to expire. For truly, I tell you, he says, and at this point in the message, you could have heard a pin drop. Every time he shared this message, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And they all exhaled like, ah. Oh. And he smiled. And he said, until that it's not going to disappear. I'm not here to edit it. I'm not here to change it. And I believe, this is my personal opinion, this is one of the most overlooked prepositions in the entire New Testament. And because we've overlooked this preposition, and because we've overlooked the implications of what comes next, there's been so much confusion in legalism, in gracelessness, in faithlessness. In fact, the fact that you've been taught, uh, that you've not been taught what's on the other side of this preposition, is one of the reasons that perhaps you've left the faith or considered leaving the faith. Jesus said, None of it's going to disappear, none of it's going to change until until everything is accomplished, until everything is in place. And then it will disappear along with everything associated with it. And that wasn't just incredible. That was unimaginable. Jesus, like Jesus. I mean, you're good and all, but you're telling, that, telling us that our whole approach to God, our whole approach to understanding God and everything associated with our covenant with God and the sacrificial system and the temple system, you're saying that all of that at some point is going to disappear? That's impossible. And 40 years later, on August 6, A.D. 70, at the hands of Titus and the Roman 10th Legion, ancient Judaism went out of business. and has never been practiced since. You can't practice it without a temple. And more on that next week. I'm telling you, don't miss miss next week, okay? Now, here's the point in all this. And here's the point Jesus was eventually going to make. And this is the point that the Apostle Paul would look back later and explain to the rest of the Gentile world that Jesus came to introduce something new to the world and also for the world. But in order for that to happen, Jesus was born under God's covenant with Israel. In other words, he was born to obey the law that God had given Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. He was born under the law, but he came into this world to fulfill it, to end it. And here's the good news. And to replace it with something new and something better. To replace it with a covenant that was not between God and a nation, but to replace it with a covenant that was between God and the whole world. And all of these teachings and all of these parables were foreshadowing. And here it comes. Okay, get ready. Changes in the wind. I'm not going to add on. I'm going to take out what was here and replace it with something new, something better, something broader, something for the whole world. A complete and total break was coming. And here's the thing, the early church. And when I say early church, I mean after the resurrection and the church had launched. The early church had a difficult time making a clean break from all that came before. The reality is the church still struggles with this today. Now, if there was any question in Jesus' audience that he really come to contrast himself against all that came before... This made it abundantly clear that they weren't misunderstanding things. Because six times in the message that we, recorded, that we have recorded in Matthew, Jesus says something like this. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. Six times he says this. He says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say Don't even hate. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, lust is a sin. You men, he says, you have heard that it said that if you write your wife a certificate of divorce, then you're good to go with God. I say, not so fast. Over and over, he pitched himself against the law of Moses, and his audience sat there and thought, wait a minute. When you say, you have heard it said, to the people long ago, you're talking about what Moses said. You can't set yourself up against Moses. Who do you think you are? You can't replace the lawgiver Moses. It was Moses that came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. It was Moses that said our nation has a unique relationship and covenant uh, with the Almighty God. And now you're showing up and saying that somehow your law is better than his? That your law is to replace his? Who do you think you are? And so he wraps up with something so simple and so powerful that we've been quoting it for 2,000 years. And Jesus knew the tension in that audience every time he shared this message. And so he says, so let me wrap it up for you. Let me make it simple. We covered a lot of territory. I know you're confused, so let me simplify this for you. And Jesus says, so in everything, and I'm telling you, the crowd loved this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them to do to you, for this is the bottom line of the law and the prophets. And I'm telling you, we're going to see in a few weeks, this was foreshadowing something that was new, Something, something new was coming, something far less complicated, but something far more demanding. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one having authority and not their teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, the temple leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the groups of people that didn't even get along found a common enemy in Jesus. And throughout the Gospels, we find them coming to Jesus saying, but the law says, but Moses says, what about the temple?" And on and on they would go. And one day, Matthew says, Jesus finally got fed up. And he turns to these religious leaders. And he says something that when you read it in your Bible, you miss it. But I'm telling you, this was a game changer. Jesus turns to them. And I think again, with a grin on his face. And he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And they're thinking, hey, Jesus, you've been in the sun too long, okay? Okay. There's nothing greater than the temple. How can there be anything greater? Have you seen the temple? There's nothing greater than the temple. People come from miles around to see the temple that Herod built for us. If there's something greater than the temple, then we don't need it because the temple represents the presence of God. It represents the law. It represents reconciliation between God and the nation. The temple's where we house the Torah, the law. There's nothing greater than the temple. If there's something greater than the temple, then we don't need it any longer. To which Jesus would have smiled again and said, just wait. Just wait. Now, that's a lot of information coming at you pretty fast. I recognize that. So I want to shift our focus back to us. And I want to ask you a question. Is this important? Let me ask it this way. Is this important to a ninth-grade boy? Is this important to seniors in high school who just found out that they didn't get into their college of choice and they're going, how long is this guy going to talk? Is this important to 25-year-olds who are just, got, they got their first job and they're just trying to figure life out, you know, and their mom back in Hayes or Dodge City, you know, she just wants to make sure that you're in church and so you came today. You know, we can prove it. We're on Facebook Live. You're like, my mom, I made it. Is this important to you? Is this important to baby boomers? And you're looking at the retirement thing. Is this important? The answer is yes. And let me tell you how important it is. It's important because once upon a time in our country, people took the Bible seriously. I mean, they didn't read it, but they took it seriously. I mean, I'm not going to read it, I mean, but don't put anything on top of it on Grandma's coffee table, okay? And the Bible was the Word of God. And then the internet. And now we have a generation of people who have so much misinformation about Christianity and so much misinformation about the Bible. And people are leaving the faith in droves, especially teenagers and millennials. And all mom and dad have to say when those kids come home is, well, the Bible says, the Bible says. And so once upon a time, what I'm about to tell you was really important. But those days are long gone. But now, what Jesus said and what the New Testament represents is more important than ever. Now, if you're a Christian and you love this church and you've got a lot of church friends and you know the songs and um, you know that most of your friends are Christians, um, this may not, you know, you may not need this. This may not be applicable. But if you have seniors in high school, if you have college freshmen If you care about your unchurched friends or your lost friends, if you're a person that grew up in the church and you lost faith, and every once in a while you come back and you sit on the back row because there's just something that draws you, but you have so many unanswered questions, then what Jesus taught over and over and over, the fact that he came to introduce something new, that's real important. Because you see, you have heard it said. That if the Bible says it, then I believe it, and that settles it. But Jesus said that the values from Exodus to Malachi had a shelf life. And they came to an end. He came to fulfill them, to land that plane, to bring it to an end, and to introduce something brand new. And my friends, history has proved him correct. You have heard it said, the Bible is our guide for life. Jesus never said that. Of course, when Jesus spoke, there was no the Bible. There was only the law and the prophets. But Jesus did say something about who would be your guide for life. And here's what he said. He said, look at me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am where you find life. Follow me. And that drove the Jewish religious leaders crazy. And in the end, he made this unmistakably clear. And we've missed this for years because it really wasn't all that important. But now, it's more important than ever. And in the very end, and if you grew up in church, you've read this so many times. You've heard this preached so many times. If you teach Sunday school, you've taught this so many times. After the resurrection, Jesus gathers with his followers, and he gives them a farewell address. And I want to read it to you. And I want you to listen to it through the ears of someone who's been introduced to the idea that Jesus did not come to continue something. He came to replace something. Matthew tells us. Then Jesus came to them, and he said, and who would say this, by the way? Okay? He said, He said, All authority, and remember when he talked, they were amazed because he spoke with authority. When he went into the temple and cleansed the temple and just creates chaos in the temple, the temple leaders didn't ask him, hey, what do you think you're doing? You know what they asked him? Who do you think you are? Because Jesus spoke and Jesus moved and Jesus behaved with an authority never seen before in the history of humanity. And he stood on the hill that day with men and women who had seen him crucified and now back from the dead. And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when you're standing in front of a guy who you've seen die and now he's alive, and he says that he has all authority, you go with it, okay? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not Moses, not the law, not the temple. Not the Ten Commandments. And this rattled his audience, except they'd seen him die. He says, therefore, since I am the embodiment of the authority of God, here's what I want you to do. Matthew, write this down. Therefore, in light of that, I want you to go. Now, this is going to be different. This is going to be odd. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to be in contrast to everything that you've been taught since you were little boys and girls. I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples of all nations. Well, what if we just stick around here, Jesus? No. I understand that in the old days, you were taught to secure your borders and expel the foreigners. I know what you grew up thinking. I know that you've been praying for a certain Messiah. And I'm telling you that something new has happened. It's time that you cross your borders and take the love of God to foreigners wherever you find them, and you instruct them on what it means to follow me. And you're to do for them what John the Baptist did for you and what my disciples did for you. You were to baptize them and invite them to identify with me in my message. And you're to baptize them in the name of... And see, if we grew up in the church, we know how this ends. In the name of da 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 okay? For Jews in his audience, someone was conspicuously missing from this list. And you will baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and not Moses, and not the prophets, and of the Holy Spirit of God. A lot of you who were raised like me, you've heard it said, the Bible is our guide for life. And Jesus said something very different. He said, and after you've baptized them, you were to teach them to obey everything. In the Bible? No. In the law? No. In the Ten Commandments? No. You were to teach them. And my friends, this is so important. Do you know who them is? Them is you. Because eventually they would cross their borders. Eventually, they would take this message all over the world. Eventually, this persecuted band of nobodies would topple an empire. And they wouldn't do it with a territory or a military. They would do it with the love of God and the light of life, who is Jesus. And Jesus said, Look at me, guys. I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you. What did Jesus command? Don't miss Easter Sunday, because we're going to find out. Now, here's the point, and I'm done. This is what I want you to understand. A new era had begun. It was the end of something old and something important. It was the end of something old and something necessary. It was the end of the context that would release into the world the light and the love of God that Jesus replaced everything that Solomon and Moses had put into place. And the reason this is especially important for some of you, for those of you who have lost faith or begun to doubt because of something in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, because of something that you were taught in school or something that you've sort of found on the Internet, and it sort of confirms your suspicions. Here's why this is extraordinarily good news for you. It means that Christianity can stand on its two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It doesn't need propping up by the old covenant because it's a standalone, brand-new message for the entire world. And it stands straighter that way. It's more defensible this way. And it stood the test of time, and it stood the test of an empire this way. And if all of this is so confusing for you, and I can understand that, and if it seems a bit wrong and heretical, then you can understand You can appreciate exactly how Jesus' first century audience thought and felt when he began to take away the old and replace it with something new and something better. Because after all, Moses was their guy. And after all, the Bible is our book. So don't miss next week. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you came into this world to flip everything upside down. And as you did this, you revealed the heart of the Father. Thank you for introducing something brand new to the world and also for the world. And my simple prayer this morning is that we will sit with what you've had to say to us today and allow it to transform our way of thinking our way of feeling, and most importantly, our way of living. May we be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the kind of people who invite those on the margins, people who are far from you into your glorious kingdom. And I pray this in your mighty name. Amen.